In the last year, we've seen some incredible breakthroughs in medical science. The current pandemic led to the fastest vaccine ever produced, the COVID-19 vaccine. But vaccine development happened quicker than any of us could have imagined, which led many to question its safety. Hello, my name is Alexandra Perry. I'm a science journalist based in Tucson, Arizona. Unvaccinated is a mini-series where we will begin to explore and investigate how institutions like education and healthcare produced vaccine mistrust in American society. This mistrust intensified online misinformation. It's a problem that needs to be understood if we hope to reach herd immunity or normalcy. In this episode, let's take a closer look at those institutions. Education and healthcare have touched the lives of almost every American citizen. We're going to hear from Dr. Denise Meeks, an educator. My journey through education has been uh, 27 years. And Dr. Charles Cintio, a healthcare academic. I got into academia simply to try to uh, participate and make a difference in how healthcare is delivered to our vulnerable populations. We will be discussing the social factors contributing to vaccine hesitancy in the United States. First, I want to introduce Dr. Cintio. I grew up in uh, Manchester, Connecticut. I was born in Hartford, so I'm an East Coast person. I did an undergrad in math and computer science, and then I went to business school at the University of Michigan. I then moved to Dallas to be an IT strategist. After traveling all over the world for various jobs, Cintio decided to apply his experience towards healthcare. I had an epiphany, and I decided that I wanted to do work that was a bit more impactful to people's lives. Cintio gravitated towards health equity, a type of research that uncovers how certain social groups have unequal access to healthcare based on their social circumstances. So currently, I am a professor, assistant professor at Rutgers University in the School of Communication and Information, Department of Library and Information Science. And for the 2020-2021 academic year, I'm a visiting assistant professor at MIT. I am uh, hosted by the MIT Sloan School of Business, where I'm advancing my health equity research and having an excellent experience there. Sentio's research digs deep into specific social factors that contribute to health inequities. He calls them social determinants. According to Sentio, these determinants explain why some Americans are more at risk for coronavirus infection. Factors like environment and where you live, factors like the kind of work you have, people of color are disproportionately represented in frontline essential, quote unquote, essential jobs. Very early on in the pandemic, we started to see reports about communities, uh, communities of colors, mar marginal marginalized communities who were being disproportionately impacted by this. Now, those of us who work in health equity, we kind of saw this coming, right? Because when we, when I'm immersed in, and people who do research like I do are immersed in racial inequities and in diabetes and cancer and heart disease, well, we understand that social factors drive these inequities. The pandemic has brought to light, has made inequity, health inequity, a kitchen table topic. And those topics were discussed on, in, in, on outlets like MSNBC and CNN, just seeing health equity being um, discussed as a thing, as something that's a problem has been one of the benefits really of what this pandemic has uncovered. The numbers show marginalized communities need to be the first in line to get vaccinated. 
as they've been most affected by COVID-19, according to the CDC. But it isn't going to be as easy as providing vaccines to all marginalized communities. Historical precedent shows these same communities have valid reasons to distrust scientists and doctors. And this leads to confusion about what health information they can trust. I asked Centio about a recent survey done by the Pew Research Center, showing that Black Americans were the most hesitant to receive a vaccine. Medical mistrust uh, is, a, is a construct that is validated and measured in health equity research it's used. And we've known since we've been measuring it that communities of color, specifically Black Americans, harbor more mistrust than other groups. And that's been true for decades. So it follows that vaccine hesitancy, at least COVID vaccine hesitancy, would also be higher in Black communities. Why? Well, because Black communities in particular have been targeted by what I call historical medical malfeasance since the inception of this country. And I've talked about in some of my presentations about how, for example, Dr. Marion Sims, who is known as the father of modern gynecology, experimented on slave women. And this is documented. And those experiments were done in part because Blacks were viewed and treated as less than human, or at least less than white American human, those human. Now, Dr. Sims is just the tip of the iceberg. The study titled Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male is widely known to be ethically disgraceful for the scientific community. Hundreds of Black men in this study did not give informed consent to the actual purpose of the study. They had no idea their syphilis was going untreated in exchange for knowledge on how syphilis attacks the body over time. So it was something that was done. And I'm not, I don't want to position this as every person of color who is vaccine hesitant is tying necessarily back to uh, Dr. Sims. However, part of the culture, part of the stories that we hear, those of us in Black communities, we hear about how institutions have betrayed us. As a white woman, I can never truly understand the intergenerational traumas of Black Americans. But I do understand how historical precedent leads Black Americans to vaccine hesitancy. How do you trust a system that supported forced sterilization on your ancestors within the last century? Black Americans are predisposed to distrust the American healthcare institution. And when you are less likely to trust experts from institutions, you're going to look elsewhere for your information. This is why online misinformation can be dangerous for marginalized communities. So first of all, as an information scientist, I have to make sure we're starting from a common understanding. So misinformation is false or inaccurate information, right? It doesn't mean that it's intended to deceive. It's just misinformation. Whereas disinformation is deliberately deceptive. So the way I like to remember this, and I am a, I am a teacher in part of my role too, so you'll offer me some grace here. I remember it this way. Mnemonics are wonderful, right? Disinformation is about deliberate, deceptive attempts. Misinformation is just inaccurate. They're different. 
there's been misinformation as long as there's been information, right? It's inaccurate, it's false, it's not quite fully understood. It's not, um, anyone that's played the telephone game knows that, right? That's a classic example of as information travels, it can be um, twisted and distorted, but that doesn't mean that it's deceptive necessarily or purposely deceptive. So disinformation, certainly we've all seen it, right? These healthcare now is a kitchen table topic, right? And during the pandemic, there was disinformation from the very start, from the, the tip top, the federal government on down. And there's, there's people who are more versed than I, perhaps in your field of journalism that, can, that have and will describe that and its effects. So yes, during times of uncertainty, we know that disinformation and misinformation tends to thrive and fester. It's a fertile environment for propagation when we're uncertain because human beings don't like uncertainty. It's sort of like the market. The market doesn't like uncertainty. We human beings don't like uncertainty either. So when there is high, when there are high levels of uncertainty, we get more misinformation and disinformation. It's easier to spread. As Sentio pointed out, during a pandemic, there is a lot of uncertainty. Combined with a cup of historical disenfranchisement, add two tablespoons of medical malpractice, and you've got yourself the perfect recipe for mis- and disinformation to flourish. People are latching onto any information they can get to find clarity in the chaos to protect themselves without the help of Big Brother. And to be clear, I don't blame marginalized communities for the rise in vaccine misinformation. We assume that something is wrong with participants and we have to create interventions to fix them, to teach them about cancer screenings, to teach them about how the vaccine was tested and safe for them. And that's okay. I'm not saying that we should jettison that work. But what I am saying is, why are we turning the lens on the people who are least responsible for the mistrust to begin with? How about if we look at us, those of us who represent institutions, those of us, excuse me, who might uh, be part of governmental agencies that were responsible for some of this historical and contemporary misbehavior? Why not look at our credibility? look at our trustworthiness, look at what we've done to have people trust us or what we've done to make people not trust us. Let's look at that, measure it, and see if we can influence that, raise our credibility, raise our trustworthiness so that we can turn the attention towards the parties, the people, the groups, the institutions who are most responsible for the mistrust to begin with. Cynthia is suggesting that we have a critical eye on our institutions, not people. American institutions need to reckon with social inequalities if it hopes to overcome current and future health crises. And they need to recognize the imminent need for community outreach through the internet. Vaccine misinformation thrives online. Another factor here is that people were restricted. Our movements were restricted in March, right? We all had to stay home and we were encountering something that no one that had been alive, you know, since 1917, 18 had ever experienced. 
And when you combine uncertainty with restriction, you get an even more fertile environment. There's another piece to this misinformation puzzle. Global shutdowns and travel restrictions led to a growing online presence of people from all over the world. It isn't surprising. We are seeking connection during a time of isolation. Our reliance on technology is increasing. Personal tech, like smartphones, allow us to access the world without physical contact. But the influx of online information during the pandemic is incredibly difficult to sift through. It's not easy to tell what is scientific information or the work of a disinformation campaign. The only way to recognize the signs of false scientific information is having a basic understanding of how science research works. And after seeing widespread vaccine misinformation, I have to wonder if we were ready to start interpreting the process of vaccine research from online media. One of my favorite quotes by astronomer Carl Sagan is something he wrote in 1990. He wrote, We live in a society exquisitely dependent on science and technology in which hardly anyone knows anything about science and technology. Sagan's point in 1990 still rings true in 2021. The pandemic pushed everyone online, but the American education system didn't prepare us for this move and the influx of online information. Okay, I am um, Dr. Denise Meeks. My journey through education has been uh, 27 years of teaching as a professor. Some years were spent at the U of A and 22 of those years were spent at Pima College. Meeks loves being a professor and a student. Um, I have a bachelor's double major in astronomy and physics. I have a master's in systems engineering. After that, I went and got a doctorate in math education. And I was out of school for a couple of years and wanted to go back in. So I got another master's in geosciences. And then I got another master's in space studies. And now I'm working on a master's degree in science journalism. <laughs> she loves school. Well, I love learning and I love helping students learn. I want students to be successful at their learning. With decades of experience under her belt, I asked her to give us an insider perspective on science education and how it could have assisted in the rise in vaccine misinformation. Now, an important aspect of teaching science is passing on the skills of science literacy. Science literacy helps us to apply scientific knowledge outside the classroom. This type of literacy can help us determine if something online seems fishy. All right, I think science literacy is, is being able to, um, it's a lot of things. It's being able to read a scientific article and understanding the basis of how the science was done. So you have to determine whether or not the science is reliable. Science literacy can provide you with a foundation for informed decision making. And science isn't just a research article. Science has changed most of our everyday items. Um, the internet itself, the way the whole thing is set up, is science. It's everywhere, using our cell phones, just what you and I are doing right now, talking to each other. This is all because science. So you and I can talk to each other because there are communications networks set up all over the world that allow us to do this. And this little tiny box we're talking on right now is more powerful than the computers that were on Apollo spacecraft. Every part of our modern world is touched by science. Science advances us and makes life a little more comfortable. Scientific innovation lowered the mortality rate of viruses that have historically killed us, like influenza. And I'm glad Dr. Meeks mentioned cell phones. These little boxes connect us to a wealth of information. With personal tech, the world of science is at our fingertips. 
But the abundance of information during the COVID-19 pandemic muddies expert advice and confuses the public on best health practices. According to the World Health Organization, this is the first pandemic in history in which technology and social media play an important role in keeping the public informed. American science education hasn't prepared us for weeding out bad information in a haystack of online content. My students, the students that I have would come out of wherever they went to high school, and it didn't matter where. It didn't matter what part of town it was in. Uh, they would come out really not knowing, knowing much of anything about science. Meek's statement is backed with data. In 2020, the National Science Board released its biennial report on science and engineering indicators for the U.S. It's a huge review of how America stacks up against other developed countries in scientific innovation. Eighth graders in the U.S. fell short against six other countries in science and mathematics. But even more astounding, math, science, technology, and engineering literacy scores haven't improved in decades. Science in the modern age is advancing, and American education hasn't. And this is important. We haven't been trained to recognize pseudoscience, which Meek says is integral in stopping the spread of misinformation at the individual level. When I taught at the Desert Vista campus, I taught there for 10 years, and about 70% 70 of the students at the Desert Vista campus were Hispanic. And I loved these students. Most of these students were first-generation college students. And getting to college was really going to change their lives. It was going to help them a lot. They were going to be able to help their families. They were going to be able to be good role models for their children. Um, it, education kind of levels the playing field. and It was going to give them opportunities that other people in their families didn't have. And I think that's kind of important because that helps prevent the spread of misinformation. So if you're a student and you're learning about science and you go home and other people in your family are talking about like what you were saying, people spreading misinformation and disinformation, you can say, you know, I'm taking a science class and I learned that that's really not the case and this is why. Again, what Meeks is saying is reflected in the review. The National Science Board found that higher levels of education led to more confidence in the scientific community. Science literacy gives us a critical eye over false information. A scientifically literate person who comes across an Instagram post suggesting to gargle vodka for 10 seconds to kill the coronavirus will pause before sharing and ask themselves, does the post have a sighting? Do you know the person who posted this? Do they have an affiliation at a scientific institution? Do they work in epidemiology? All of these checklist questions can be taught in a science class. So how do we improve science education to better protect ourselves from mis- and disinformation? Well, it's not going to be easy. We have to put people in positions of power that support science education funding. Exactly, right. So if, we're, if we are scientifically illiterate human beings, we are going to elect scientifically illiterate human beings because we don't know any better. And the House and the Senate right now are filled with scientifically illiterate human beings who then make scientifically illiterate laws. They also don't believe in funding science education, so it's one big vicious circle. You know, this is how we got people who are anti-vaxxers, don't understand global warming, don't understand plate tectonics. There are a lot of basis, basics that they don't get because their schools haven't been funded to provide them with that kind of information because the people who are making the laws that govern, govern the funding don't think that science is important enough. Politicians play a role in providing funding to science education. 
And as Dr. Meeks mentioned, we've recently had an influx of anti-science individuals holding office. Former President Donald Trump famously cast doubt on experts at the start of the pandemic and weaponized social media to spread COVID-19 misinformation. And this can be dangerous. Spreading science misinformation during a pandemic puts citizens at risk. Telling people that masks, quote-unquote, don't work, endangers essential workers. Whether customers decide to not wear masks or the workers decide not to, people are exposing themselves to the virus at higher rates. What I'm getting at here is that we have a lot of societal context to consider when looking at the rise in vaccine conspiracy theories and misinformation. On the one hand, the American healthcare system has alienated communities of color, and on the other, American education falls short in preparing people for the modern world of science and technology. Both of these institutions failed at preparing citizens for a pandemic, and nobody feels confident about who to trust. These problems won't be solved in time for the coronavirus vaccines, but it's important to understand these social contexts when looking at how pervasive and destructive misinformation can be online. And since it can take a long time to create institutional change, stay tuned for next week's episode, where we discuss the newest research on the psychology aspect of misinformation and free fact-checking resources available to you today. Join me next week to learn how to be your own fact-checking investigator. Thank you to Dr. Charles Sintio and Dr. Denise Meeks for agreeing to be on the podcast. This podcast was created and produced by Alexandra Perry for the University of Arizona Journalism School and the Daily Wildcat, UA's award-winning student newspaper, online all the time at dailywildcat.com. Music in this episode is provided by Ben Sound. <laughs>